Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. And Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, which is the sermon text for today. This Old Testament passage should be very familiar to you, but I think you'll see the connection here. It's here where the prophet is speaking of the coming new covenant and what it will be like and the fact that in this new covenant, once it comes, all who belong to God will have uh, the, the, the law of God written upon their heart. They will be made regenerate. And here the book of Ephesians also speaks to this um, new creation that has been brought to us through Christ. So there is a connection. Jeremiah 31, 31. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The prophet long ago spoke to Israel saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Let us go now to Ephesians chapter 4 and read verses 17 through 24, which is our sermon text for today. Paul the Apostle wrote to the church in Ephesus, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So far the reading of God's Word. May the Lord add His blessing to the preaching of it today. Brothers and sisters, I think it is very important for us that we follow the flow of thought of the Apostle as we journey deeper and deeper into his letter to the Ephesians. I think if we were reading Paul's letter all at once, it might be a little easier for us to follow his reasoning. But given that we are taking his letter piece by piece, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, I think it is easy for us to lose track of the progression of thought that is contained here. We are to remember that in the first half of his letter, Paul described to us the awesome richness and beauty of our redemption in Christ. The once dead in sin, guilty before God and alienated from Him, God by His grace has made us alive. He has removed our guilt. He has reconciled us to Himself by the blood of Christ so that we are His beloved sons through faith in Him. And having been called to faith in Christ and thus reconciled to the Father, we are now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This is the theme of the second half of Paul's epistle. And here in chapters 4 through 6, Paul urges us to walk worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are filled with commands. And this we will soon see. We will soon encounter a slew of commandments that come to us uh, from uh, the Apostle. Uh, These chapters are packed full of verbs in the imperative mood in the Greek. Verbs in the imperative mood express commands or exhortations. And I'd like for you to allow me to show you this in uh, the, the Greek. And you'll notice on the screen the text of Ephesians. And as I scroll through the book of Ephesians very quickly, you'll see that the imperatives are highlighted in red. You'll notice that there are no imperatives in Ephesians chapter 1. Instead, Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, in fact, are filled with a bunch of indicatives. Uh, Paul is here teaching. He is describing to us the benefits that have come to us in Christ Jesus. There are no imperatives in chapter 1. There are no imperatives in chapter 2, except in verse 11, where Paul said to the Gentiles, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He goes on to say, Remember that you were alienated from God without hope in the world. So the command that Paul gives to the Gentiles is that they would remember how lost they once were prior to the time of Christ. But again, no imperatives or commandments in chapters 2 with the exception of that one or in chapter 3. And then as we go into chapter 4, still none, but we will soon, and beginning with next week, encounter a whole slew of imperatives where Paul begins to say things like this to us. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There, the word speak is in the imperative mood. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Later, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We're to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, along with all malice. We're to be kind to one another. And these imperatives continue all the way through chapter 5 as the apostle continues to command the church generally, but also he issues commands to husbands and wives, also to children and parents and even to bond servants and masters. In fact, we all together are to be strong in the Lord. We are to put on the whole armor of God. I show this to you very quickly just so that you might see what is coming. The imperatives are coming. The commandments are coming and they are all based upon the truths previously established in this epistle, uh, that we have been redeemed in Christ. We have been made new. We have been washed. We have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, adopted as sons and daughters of God. This is all coming, these imperatives. Now, granted, in the Greek language, there are other ways to express commands or exhortations. But again, I show this to you so that you might more clearly see the flow of thought of the apostle. In the first half of his epistle, he establishes truth. In the second half, he issues commands based upon the truths previously established. So, what are we to think about this section that we are in today? Uh, What are we to make of Ephesians 4, 1 through 24? uh, 17 through 24, rather. Uh, This section clearly introduces the application portion of Paul's epistle. We are to remember that the application began in 4, 1 with the words, 
I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But as you can see, Paul does not begin to string together his imperatives until 425. So what is he doing here in this section? Well, he's still teaching us. And if we pay careful attention to what he says, we will notice that he is answering the question, how can a person who once walked in darkness begin to walk in light? I think that is what he is addressing here. At the beginning of his application portion of his epistle, before he strings together all of these imperatives, I think he is addressing this question that might be on our minds. How can a person who once walked in darkness begin to walk in light? Stated differently, How will a person change his or her way of life, ceasing to walk in an unworthy manner and walking now in a manner that is worthy? Perhaps you have noticed how uncommon it is for a person to change his or her way of life for the better. Perhaps you have noticed how difficult it is for a person to cease from doing evil and to do good instead. It is not so difficult for men and women to move from being Good, relatively speaking, of course, to evil. It is not so difficult for a person who is wicked to grow more wicked. That happens all the time. Just as falling from some high place requires no physical exertion at all, whereas climbing from a low place to a high place requires great physical exertion, so too it is in the world of morality and sin. Sin has a gravitational-like effect upon the human soul. It is always pulling downward upon us. It is always discouraging upward movement. And I think you have undoubtedly experienced this yourself, and you could see the effects of it in the world all around you. So how will it be that the Christian will change? How will it be that we will have success in this transformation of our way of life, that we would no longer walk in an unworthy manner, but that we would walk worthy in Christ Jesus. We know that we have been forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, and adopted by the shed blood of Christ and through faith in Him alone. But I want for you to notice that these are all positional realities. You were once guilty, but now you have been declared by God not guilty. You were once filthy with sin, but now you have been washed You were once enslaved, but now you are free. You were once alienated and at enmity with God, but now you are beloved sons. By the grace of God, your position before God has been changed. And all of that was instantaneous, being brought about the moment you believed. But here the apostle is addressing not our position before God, but our walk. He is addressing now our way of life, which is an ongoing and progressive development within the life of the believer. And so once again, I ask you the question that the Apostle is here addressing in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. How can we change? How will we be transformed from liars and thieves into people who are honest, generous, and kind? How will we be changed from sexually immoral and perverse people into people who live lives that are upright and pure before God? How will we be changed from people who are hateful and unforgiving to children of love? I would imagine that many within this world would doubt if transformation such as this is even possible. To them it might seem to be the stuff of fairy tales. But within Christ's church, it is what we expect to see, isn't it? We expect that those who have been forgiven by Christ, cleansed and adopted, will then proceed to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling as beloved children of God. 
This is our expectation. But how will this transformation take place? That is the question. And what we learn here in the first half of Ephesians 4 is that God uses both external and internal means to bring about the transformation of His people. The Apostle has already addressed the external means in verses 7 through 16. There we learn that God has given gifts to His people. Specifically, He has given His people the gift of His Word, along with ministers of the Word, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are to devote devote themselves to the preaching of, of the Word and to the perfecting of the saints, the work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, This is the external means that God uses to bring about transformation in His people. The Word of God, the preaching and teaching of it, will be the external means that God uses to mature His people and to bring about their transformation. Now, why have I called the ministry of the Word of God an external means? Well, I would ask you to simply observe what is happening right now. The Word of God is being ministered to you. It is being proclaimed and taught through preaching. And all of that is external to you. There are many in this room, I hope and pray, who by the grace of God are also receiving the Word inwardly and with faith. But there may be some who are closed off to the Word who ignore it or reject it altogether. I pray that that would change if it is the case. But the point is that the preaching and teaching of the Word of God is only an external thing if the Spirit of God does not apply it to the heart with with the gift of faith. Here in verses 17 through 24, which is our text for today, the Apostle identifies the internal means which brings about true transformation in the life of the believer, namely the renewal of the inner man by the power and agency of the Holy Spirit. I want for you to notice the title of this sermon. It is, A Worthy Walk Proceeding from a Renewed Spirit. A Worthy Walk Proceeding from a Renewed Spirit. Where does this worthy walk come from? Well, it proceeds, it can only proceed from heart transformation, from a truly renewed spirit. And this happens by the agency of God's Holy Spirit. Friends, you and I must choose to walk worthily. You and I must daily and momentarily choose to put off the old self and to put on the new. We will come to that in just a moment. This is indeed true. But I want for you to pay very careful attention to what the Apostle teaches us here in this passage. This worthy walk, this new way of life, proceeds from a new creation. This worthy walk that we are to take up is only possible because God has renewed us by the gracious working of His Spirit within our souls. I think the implications of this are massive. Stated succinctly, the church is not merely a school where men and women are taught morals. Instead, it is the assembly of those who have been born anew, who are presently being transformed into the likeness of their Savior by the power of the Word of God and by the agency of the Holy Spirit. This is not a school, but this is, a, this is an assembly of God's new creation community. That is what this is. And this is why we therefore expect that those in Christ truly so will walk in a worthy manner. We expect to see it because we believe that if we are in Christ, we have been, in fact, born again. We have been regenerated and renewed. The text that is before us today can be divided into two basic parts. 
In verses 17 through 19, the believer is exhorted to turn away from the old life. And then in verses 20 through 24, we are encouraged to walk in the new life, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So first, consider this strong exhortation from the apostle to turn away from our old way of life. In verse 17, we read, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. I have called this exhortation a strong exhortation. Uh, For the Greek is unusually strong in its verbiage and also in its construction. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, the Apostle says. There is no imperative here, but the phrase has the force of a command. Paul is concerned to communicate that this is very solemn. It's a very important matter that he is now addressing. Uh, Those who are in Christ must not walk any longer as the Gentiles do. It is simply not an option. It cannot be. The one who has been made alive in Christ must not continue to walk in a worldly way. And I might pause here and ask the question, do you agree with the Apostle concerning this? Do you agree with his perspective on sin regarding the believer? Do you agree with his solemn testimony that those in Christ must not continue in sin? Or is sin of little concern to you? And I am afraid that some in Christ have a careless and cavalier attitude concerning sin. Perhaps they have been so comforted by the forgiveness of sins in Christ that they have failed to see sin as the vile thing that it is before God. The doctrine of God's free grace, if misunderstood, can have this effect upon people. It can lead us to excuse our sin or to minimize its severity, saying, well, I'm forgiven, aren't I? But the Apostle is very concerned to protect us from this error. It is true the forgiveness of sins is by God's grace and is received through faith in Christ. And true, we do not earn God's love nor keep it by our obedience. And it is also true that God is always willing to forgive those who are truly repentant. But here, Paul is concerned to say that it must not be, it cannot be, that the one who has been reconciled to God and adopted as a son would go on living as if still alienated from God and a child of wrath. No, friends, we do not earn God's love by our obedience to Him, but certainly the one who has been made alive by the love of God will show their love for God through obedient living. This is how they will express their gratitude, through obedient living. This will be the product of that renewed spirit within them. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the apostle says. We should remember that these to whom Paul was writing, were Gentiles. They were Gentiles, ethnically speaking, and not Jews. And earlier, Paul called them Gentiles, saying, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so on and so forth. And in another place, Paul said to them, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he is not opposed to calling them Gentiles. He is not opposed to speaking the truth concerning their ethnicity. They are Gentiles and not Jews. But what does Paul say here to them? He here exhorts them with these words, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And I think this phrase indicates that these Gentile Christians have made such a break with their former way of life that they have a new identity now in Christ. Whereas before they might have taken pride in the fact that they were Greek or Roman or Ephesian. Now they have a new identity. There is a break 
that has taken place from their old way of life, their old identity. They now have a new identity. They were children, uh, they, they are now children of God and citizens of His kingdom. The distinction between Jew and Gentile no longer matters, for they have been born from above. And having been born from above, belonging now to a new family and being citizens of a new kingdom means that they are now to abandon their old customs and they are to adopt new ones in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's exhortation to them. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons the world will despise God's people. No matter where the church exists, she is to be countercultural. The true Christian will not live the way that the world lives, speak the way the world speaks, nor think the way the world thinks. And this countercultural dimension of the church, it'll look different from place to place, but the issue will always be the same. Uh, to quote Peter, the world will be surprised when we do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they will malign us. That is 1 Peter 4.4. 4. The world will hate the Christian in part because the Christian refuses to walk the way that the world walks. It is at the end of verse 19 that Paul offers up a brief description of the way the Gentiles walk. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Well, how do they walk, Paul? Well, in verse 19, near to the end of it, he gives us a glimpse of the walk of the Gentiles. There he says that they have given themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this is a very generic description of the way that the Gentiles walk, isn't it? It's a very generic terms. He's speaking here very broadly. Paul speaks more specifically in other places. Uh, take, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, where he says to the, to the Christians in Corinth, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here in this passage that I've just read, Paul is more specific concerning the way of the life, the way of life of the non-believer. But notice that his point is the same. When you read all of Paul's letters, you'll begin to notice this, that he makes the same points to these churches, but in different ways, emphasizing different things. The point is the same. Such were some of you, he said to those Christians in Corinth. In other words, you yourselves used to live this, this way. But having been washed, having been sanctified, having been justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit, your walk is now different. Here in Ephesians, Paul describes the walk of the non-believing Gentiles by simply saying, they have given themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word sensuality refers to a lack of moral restraint, but especially it pertains to sexual licentiousness. Notice that Paul says the Gentiles have given themselves up to this way of life. They have given in to this temptation. They've given themselves over to it. The word impurity can refer to immoral behavior in general, but often refers to sexual sin in particular. 
And I want for you to notice the strong language that Paul uses here, saying that non-believing Gentiles are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This means that they are eager to be immoral. They have a strong desire to do that which is filthy in the eyes of God. And Paul is saying to the one who is in Christ, you must no longer walk in this way. You must put away this way of life along with these strong desires that are within you to live contrary to God's most holy word. Perhaps you have noticed this way of thinking grow ever more prevalent in our culture. Those who have given themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity more and more reason in this way I have noticed. They reason that if they have a desire to behave in a certain way, then they cannot change it. And the behavior cannot be called immoral, therefore, given the strong desire that is within them. Those who reason in this way will never be consistent in their application of this principle. I'm sure of it. Even they will continue to call some behaviors wrong and will urge the one who has a strong desire to act in such a way to fight against the temptation that is within them. The one who practices homosexuality, for example, might excuse his or her sin by appealing to the attraction that is felt inwardly. And yet at the same time, the one who practices homosexuality will most likely condemn the liar, the thief, the adulterer, the murderer, and will have none of it if they reply back saying, but the desires within me to lie or to steal are just so strong. What will they say in return? But you must fight against that impulse for this behavior is wrong. Now granted, these sins that I've just mentioned do involve victims. Whenever we lie, we lie to someone. Whenever we steal, we steal from someone. When we commit adultery, we commit adultery against someone to whom we have committed our lives. When we murder, we take the life of another. I do understand that these sins involve victims. And if sin is only defined as that which harms another, I do suppose I could understand the inconsistency here in the application of this principle. But notice this, not all sin involves a victim. It is possible for two or more consenting adults to engage in sin. Indeed, it is possible for a person to sin all alone. Sin does not always involve a victim. Crime does, but sin does not. For sin is any lack of conformity unto or violation of the law of God. Sin, above all, and first and foremost, is against God. And here I am saying that even those who practice homosexuality or some other sin will admit that there are some desires that should not be acted upon. I think they will agree with that principle. There are some desires that simply should not be acted upon, for they are twisted desires. I think even they will agree with this. They will admit that there are some desires that should not be acted upon, and that indeed it is possible to exercise restraint. Having a strong desire for some impure thing does not justify the sin that proceeds from that desire. In fact, the desire itself is sinful and must be resisted. And clearly this is what the Scriptures teach. For Paul is here calling the one who is in Christ to no longer walk in the way that the Gentiles do. They have given themselves up to sensuality. They have given themselves over to this way of life. And they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Stated differently, in Christ you must not give yourself up to sensuality. And you must not be greedy or driven by strong desires to practice every kind of impurity, for you are a new creation. 
As I have said, at the end of verse 19, Paul briefly describes the Gentiles' walk. But in verses 17 through 19a, the first portion of it, Paul identifies the source of their impure walk with these words, in the futility of their minds. Paul then expands upon this saying, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and as a result of all of this, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I want for you to understand this clearly, brothers and sisters. People do what they do from the heart. This is such an important principle to understand. It is important for you to understand it, to understand why others act the way that they act. It's important for you to understand it, to understand why you act the way that you act. People, human beings, do what they do from the heart. A heart that is impure will produce a life that is impure. A mind that is twisted will produce a life that is twisted. And this is why the proverb says so beautifully, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That is Proverbs 4.23. And this is why Christ Himself said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is where our life, our words, our actions come from. They come from the heart. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul is teaching that the non-believing Gentiles have given themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity because of the futility of their minds. This does not mean that Gentiles do not have intelligence or that, they mac- or that they lack mental capacity. But rather this means that their way of thinking, even if they be very brilliant people, very intelligent people, their way of thinking is empty. There are very brilliant people in this world whose minds are empty and futile. Indeed, if our minds are not directed towards the glory of God in all things, then our thinking is empty thinking. Paul elaborates saying they are darkened in their understanding. This means that they do not have the capacity to perceive the truth. The result is that they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Uh, To be alienated from the life of God is to be dead spiritually and without hope in this world. And this, the apostle says, is due to their hardness of heart. Sin hardens the heart. We are born in sin. Our hearts are not naturally soft to God or to the things of God, but hard. And as we sin, our hearts grow harder and harder. Indeed, they became callous, Paul says. The imagery is very powerful here. We do not over time and progressively naturally grow softer to the things of God, but harder and harder as we live a life of sin. I think it is becoming clear to you even now that only God can give life to those who are dead. Only God could break a heart of stone. Only He can soften the one who has grown callous to Him. Teaching morality will do nothing at all to make a guilty man innocent or a sinful man pure. Men and women might learn to put up a facade. They might learn to alter their behavior so as to benefit themselves somehow. 
But they will not be moved to give glory to God through moral instruction. For we are by nature futile in our thinking, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. We are by nature, apart from God's work of regeneration, callous to God and to the things of God. If God is to reconcile us to Himself and truly change us, then He must make us new. That is clear. And this is what Paul tells us that God has done for us if we are in Christ Jesus. It is because God has given us new life. In Christ we have been recreated, and it is in this new life which is ours in Christ Jesus that we are now to walk. And this is the second point of the sermon today. Walk in the new life which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've been made new. Now walk in that newness of life. In verse 20, Paul Contrast the walk of the Gentiles with the walk of the Christians, saying, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. I actually think that NIV provides a little better translation of these two verses when it says this, listen carefully. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way, Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. To learn Christ, as the ESV puts it, is not to learn about Him factually, but to come to know Him truly. And I think the NIV brings that out a little bit better. And Paul is not here doubting whether the Ephesians know Christ. The NIV uh, might be interpreted in that way as if he was somehow unsure of it. Uh, He has already said that he is sure of it. He knows that these are in Christ. Here he is reminding the Ephesians of their conversion and of the teaching they received before and after their baptism at the beginning of the Christian life. He is reminding them of their faith and repentance, of the instruction they received from the start and how they buried the old man in the waters of baptism and were raised from the watery grave to walk in the newness of life. This is what Paul is doing here. He is reminding them of when they came to know Christ initially and and what they were taught concerning Him And the way that they were to live. That is the meaning, I think, of verses 20 and 21. In verse 22, Paul reminds the Ephesians of how from the beginning they were taught to put off their old self, which belongs to their former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. This is how they were taught in Christ. This is how they came to know Him. They were taught from the beginning to put off the old self and to put on the new The phrase, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, might also be translated, being renewed in the spirit of your minds. Follow along with me here, brothers and sisters. I'm going to urge focus and attention. The verb renewed that you see there in the ESV translation is in the passive voice in the Greek, which indicates that the subject of the sentence is not doing the action, but is being acted upon. Did you follow along with me there? It's in the passive voice indicating that the subject of the sentence is not doing the action, but is being acted upon. This, in other words, is not a command to be renewed, as if you could do that to yourself. But it is rather a description of what has and is being done to the Christian, namely, renewal in the spirit of their minds. And the verb is in the present tense in the Greek, indicating that the action is in process. 
So friends, here is what Paul is saying to you. In Christ, you have been renewed and you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is being done to you. It has been done to you by God, through Christ, and by the agency of the Holy Spirit. In verse 24 we read, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, here we find another passive verb, which is translated, created after the likeness of God. Again, it is important to know this. This is not a command. Paul is not here saying to you, be recreated or recreate yourself, but rather he is describing something that has been done to you. He's not saying this is something you must do because you cannot create yourself, can you? It is something that God must do for us. This is what has been done for the Christian. If you are in Christ, God has created you anew. And here the verb, which is in fact a participle, is in the aorist tense, indicating that the action logically perceives the main verb. In other words, you have been recreated by God. He wants the Ephesians to recognize this, that they have been and are being renewed in the spirit of their minds, and they have been recreated by God. They have been created anew. And if we pay careful attention to these two verbs in the passive voice, I think the meaning becomes clear. What is Paul saying to us? Given that we have been renewed by God in the spirit of our minds, we are to daily put off the old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And given that we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we are now to put on daily the new self. Stated differently, what has God done for us? Well, He has renewed the spirit of our minds. At one time, we too were given up to sensuality, and we too were greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And why were we living in such a way? Well, it was because our minds were at that time futile and our understanding darkened. We too were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us. Our hearts were also hard and calloused towards God, but... We have been renewed by God. The old man is dead and gone, therefore. Where there was once futility, there is substance. Where there was once darkness, there is now light. Where there was once death, there is life. Where there was once hard and calloused hearts, there is now a heart that is tender with love for God and neighbor. The old man is gone, friends. And here Paul is encouraging us to put that old way of life Away, Cast it off altogether, for you are no longer that old sinful creature, but you have been renewed by God. Walk in a manner worthy now of this calling to which you have been called. And indeed, God has created you anew in His likeness, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, it is hard to read Ephesians 4.24 and to not think of Genesis 1.27. I hope you agree with me. It is there that God said... Or there that we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and they were created upright with true righteousness and holiness. This was lost when man fell into sin. By nature, we are not right with God, and we do not live right, nor are we holy. 
But this is what God has done for us in Christ. In Christ, through faith in Him, we have been created anew. As Paul says elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. It is this new man, the man that has been created anew in Christ Jesus that we are daily to put on or clothe ourselves with so that we might walk in a manner that is worthy to the glory of the God who has redeemed us and who has also renewed us. And so how does God change His people? That was the question. How does He change His people? Well, we have learned here in Ephesians chapter 4, in the first part of it, that He changes us through the external means of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. But here we learn more specifically that God also changes His people inwardly through the transformation of the mind and heart by the power of His Holy Spirit. So friends, if anyone is truly in Christ, they will keep His commandments. I'm not saying that they will always obey Christ. I'm not saying that they will never sin. The scriptures do not teach this. Corruptions remain within us. Sometimes we will fail to put off the old man and to put on the new. Sometimes we will walk in a way that is inconsistent with our new creation self. But if we are truly in Christ, if we are truly born again, we will not remain in sin. Living in sin is a torturous affair for the believer. For the life of sin is a contradiction to the new life that has been wrought in us. The light that is in us will hate the darkness. The life that is in us will hate the stench of death that sin brings. But here the Apostle is solemnly warning us to walk worthily, to walk in a way that is fitting given our calling. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but having been renewed and recreated in Christ Jesus, we must daily lay the old man down and be clothed with the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's bow together for a word of prayer, brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, we are thankful for our redemption in Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our justification and adoption. But here, Lord, we are also thankful that you are progressively sanctifying us, making us into the likeness of Christ. Help us to understand, Lord, that all of this springs forth from this renewed mind that you have given to us, this renewed heart. Father, help us to be responsible, to walk in a manner that is worthy. Help us to pray and to depend upon you for our sanctification. Help us to cry out to you saying, Lord, change me ever more so into the likeness of Christ. Renew my heart ever more so. Engrave in your law upon our hearts ever more so. But help us also to rise up each and every day and to lay aside that old self which is corrupt and to put on the new that has been given to us in Christ. Father, do help us as your people whom you have redeemed and recreated to truly walk in a manner that is worthy. May we love you and obey you because of what you have done for us out of gratitude. 
Father, help our worthy walk to proceed from this renewed spirit for our good and the glory of your name and all of God's people say, Amen.